I'm so honored to be here with Zadie Smith, who is um, one of my absolute favorite writers, and I still can hardly believe that she's going to be writing for Harper's every month, and I feel extremely, extremely privileged to work with her. And I'm going to start with a quotation. And um, the quotation is by Thomas de Quincey, and it's from an essay that he wrote in 1823 about Macbeth. And the quote is, From my boyish days I had always felt a great perplexity on one point in Macbeth. It was this, the knocking at the gate. And now I'm going to read something that Zadie wrote in Changing My Mind. It's the very beginning of the essay she writes on Kafka. And she writes, How to describe Kafka the man? Like this, perhaps. Quote, It is as if he had spent his entire life wondering what he looked like without ever discovering there are such things as mirrors. A naked man among a multitude who are dressed. A mind living in sin with the soul of Abraham. Franz was a saint. And then there's a footnote, and it says, respectively, Walter Benjamin, Milena Jasenska, Eric Heller, and Felice Bauer. And I wanted to start with that because the reason I think Zadie is such a brilliant writer and such a brilliant critic is that she is extremely aware of the uncertainties um, in books, and she is not afraid to say that. And that's not really a question. <laughs> um, I, I guess uh, what I feel about that is that um, that's a kind of necessity of my own stupidity. You know, when I'm trying to write a piece, I, I'm not able or not capable of deciding beforehand uh, my angle or some overarching theory. And, and just personally, when I'm reading uh, reviews or when I'm reading nonfiction, I, I'm wanting to see somebody thinking, you know? My favorite kind of uh, criticism is people thinking aloud. Yeah. And so that's what I'm trying to aim for. And also partly out of a, a kind of spirit of autodidactism, excuse me, um, <laughs> which is, uh, which kind of follows me around because I, I, my own education was kind of basic and then suddenly uh, very involved. I went from a kind of general state school, 2,000 kids, kind of uh, messy, random education and then through what used to be a kind of British meritocracy, no money, you're passed into a very fine university. But in between those two things, for me, there's like an enormous gap and that gap is filled with fear of not knowing, of constantly not knowing. Um, so I, I feel when I'm writing, I'm still in that place. You know, I don't think you ever completely get out of that place when you feel that you haven't known. And, and do you think that, that that would apply as well, not just to criticism, but to sort of, I don't know, fiction and all, all great writing? Fiction is a completely different kind of terror. Like the thing I'm attracted to when I'm writing nonfiction is that you don't know, but you can know, right? There's a possibility of knowing. You can control the area in which you write. And it, to me, it feels like a small formal garden, and I can make it as nice as possible. Length is another part of that. Whereas novels are um, absolutely chaotic and, and messy <laughs> and embarrassing. Like, I always note, uh, like when I'm teaching students or younger people, there's uh, they're always very keen to tell me how much they prefer my nonfiction to my fiction. It's like a very <laughs> popular comment uh, in New York. And uh, I, I don't disagree with it, but what strikes me about it is that it reveals how difficult novels are, how embarrassing they are. You know, people are always dreaming when they're reading novels of some kind of uh, perfection in them, some kind of purity. And uh, so am I, and so I think most novel novelists. But novels don't play that way. Mm. I mean, historically, they don't play that way. Defoe didn't write them that way. Richardson didn't write them that way. They, they're kind of personalized, messy objects. So it doesn't surprise me that people are attracted to criticism because it feels like this pure place. But then I guess I'm kind of constitutionally tempted to mess up criticism, too, <laughs> to, make it, to make it slightly disastrous. Yeah, I, I have a kind of... I just feel suspicious of very of an ideal of pure writing, of something which never embarrasses you, which is completely clean. Just in my experience, the writing which is completely clean is writing that's shorn from it almost everything that's of interest. So, so um, could you tell us about maybe one novel or two novels that feel perfect in an imperfect way or imperfect in a perfect way? Like your favorites. Um, 
I mean, there are novels, like a novel I mention a lot, like Penin by Nabokov, which is, uh, you know, overdone, slightly overheated, too short, lopsided, um, written on the hoof as well. You know, it was written for the New Yorker at some speed and then uh, slightly tidied up afterwards. But those imperfections in it and, and that uh, kind of imbalance is what I enjoy, I suppose. But, I, but when I'm writing criticism, I, I'm kind of also subject to that idea that I can get rid of all that messiness and write something that within a page, two pages, three pages, doesn't make me want to be sick, which I think is the aim of, 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 all, of all writers. You want to feel as unnauseous as possible. <laughs> Misuse of the word there, thank you. So now I'm going to embarrass Sadie by reading a really fantastic, fantastic paragraph. The last paragraph of the first column she's written for Harper's um, for new books, and it's about um, Javier Marias. And I think it, it does exactly that. It does not make you want to throw up at all. Hey, bonus. Um, Marias's literalism is especially striking. Characters tell their tall tales. I should probably say that this is about While the Women Are Sleeping, which has just been released from New Direction. And, okay. Um, characters tell their tall tales awkwardly, stating the obvious, describing the same detail multiple times. The implicit becomes explicit. A butler who practices black magic on the boss's wife describes her fetish for precision a little too precisely. Quote, she likes me to wear my silk gloves all the time in the belief that a butler should be constantly running his finger over every surface, over the furniture and along the banisters to check for dust, because if there is any dust, the gloves will pick it up immediately. Why not, end quote, why not put a period after that first dust? Elsewhere, in a story about a man obsessively filming the perfect wife he means to kill, this technique is obliquely revealed, mere looking, looking, contrasted with the capacity to see, which is what we almost never do because it is at, so at odds with the purely temporal. For it is then that one sees everything, the figures and the background, the light, the composition and the shadows, the three-dimensional and the flat, the pigment and the line, as well as each brush stroke. And this is Zadie's brilliant final sentence. The fantastic is made credible by its banal clarity, its lack of shade, which is really, really smart. Um, I, 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 Sorry. It's fine. Uh, Marius is a great example of what I mean. Like, there's a real awkwardness sometimes to his prose, which if you're only listening for cadence, if you only care about the sound of a sentence, there are moments in that book where I, I do care about the sound of a sentence and I, I kind of wanted to push him away. But I, uh, the kind of reviewing that I like or the kind I aspire to takes another moment. You know, it's, it's easy to uh, feel contempt for writing or to feel, um, or to get one over on it. Um, and I'm, I guess I'm trying to read a, a book along its own grain, you know, and, and not always against its grain. Yeah. There are certain books, the sensibility is so opposite from your own, there's no hope. You can't read with it. And in those cases, personally, I'd rather not review it because I, I don't have enough energy to write about things I hate. I think it's, that's a <laughs> particular kind of motivation that I don't have. But books that you have a kind of troubling relationship or, or a complex relationship with, that I find interesting. Mm. And Maria's like seeing a writer who has moments of, of, to my own sensibility, feel like failures, and then you realize within his context are deliberate, are useful, are, are there for something. They might not be the same things you would use in your writing or that you understand. But it's a, what I've loved so far about writing the column is having to make that jump into another writer's sensibility yeah. to try and have sympathy with it, even when it, it runs against your own. Even when he's Thomas Bernhardt. Even when he's Thomas Bernhardt. I'm a big Bernhardt fan, actually, but the... Uh, reviewing uh, the book about his, uh, my prizes, um, I had a little bit of a hard time. Um, but uh, there, to me, there's a writer who's kind of uh, embroiled in a self-fetishization. It, to, to me, that book is uh, uh, too much of, of the same tone. But then again, my instinct is at the same time to defend the novels, which I love, and, and to try and um, see that... Sometimes I've said, I think in changing my mind sometimes, that a writer's failures are the, are the most distinct part of them. Yeah. And not just to be thrown away or, or discarded. It's kind of what interests me. That might be a vocational defense because I need <laughs> to be interested in my own failures. But um, that engages me, I think. That's very, that's very smart. 
<laughs> Everything I say is very smart tonight. Lucky me. Um, well, okay, so I'm good. I wrote down a few questions I had, and some you've brought up already a little bit. Um, but something Zadie said to me that I found very interesting was about um, the two questions are sort of related. One is terminology and title, and like whether you want to be called, when you're writing in a critical vein, do you want to be called a critic? Do you want to be called a reviewer? Do you want to be called an essayist? And you said you did not like the word critic, which is interesting and I think relates to things you just said. And then another thing that you said was um, when critics or reviewers assume a certain tone that, that feels, does it feel of their age? And you mentioned Jeff Dyer as somebody who sounds of his age well, and just, contemporary. And then, and then you said you said you thought you sounded like someone from the 50s, whereas I think you that, sound like incredibly contemporary. Well, that, I guess the difference to me between a critic and a reviewer, I just prefer a reviewer because the people I've admired, people like Hazlitt, people like Coleridge, people like Virginia Woolf, Graham Greene, were doing a much more um, everyday job than, than w- w- the ideas we connect with critics. The idea is you have a book, it's put before you, you engage with that book and you write about it. And I think once you self-identify as a critic too seriously, um, all kinds of uh, personal dangers of the ego, I might put it that way, uh, come into play. You start, And I've, I think I've been guilty of them myself. You start to feel you need an overarching theory, for example, which to me, when you're being confronted with books, each of which are so different from each other, which have completely different sensibilities, to approach them with an argument, with a decision about what kind of prose you're looking for, what kind of prose you believe in, is already disastrous. Um, And also, book reviewing in the everyday practice, the way Virginia Woolf did it, uh, keeps you honest and and keeps you lively. And compassionate. The great thing about Woolf is that she reviewed books that uh, most of you would consider very bad, you know, like Victorian penny dreadfuls, awful books by completely obscure women. But Woolf was looking for the thing that interested her. Sometimes it was the cooking habits of people in the East End or, or what people wear on Oxford Street. Or it's tiny details that for her were worth the time reading this book and the amount of books she read every day and the amount of effort she put into it without ever coming up with anything as overarching as a, as a theory about writing. Woolf never really approaches that. She's much more interested always in the individual book, the individual writer. Yeah. So that I, I'm attracted to just because I think I, like a lot of people interested in books, have vainglorious tendencies in the other direction. So book reviewing kind of keeps you to the book in question. And then the tone thing, I just, I guess we were talking about Jeff Dyer, who I, I really admire in this um, department. Um, and he has a book called Working the Room. It has a different title in America, but it's coming out next month. Um, which is a collection of his reviews over the past decade. And it just always strikes me with Jeff that when he writes, his tone, while being absolutely intelligent always and absolutely acute, is completely of its time. And I don't know if you... I'm talking to 500 people. I don't know if you feel this way. But often, (laughs) to me, when I'm reading criticism, uh, people, they have Ed Wilson in mind and they have Trilling in mind, and the tone kind of takes on this kind of patrician sound, or even worse, kind of goes back to a kind of 19th century tone as if that's the only way we can write about books. And Jeff is so uh, revealingly straight without lacking any kind of intellectual complexity. He says Mm. exactly what he means as directly as possible. Um, And the results, to me, are stunning. And also a kind of... uh, The the thing that I envy in Jeff and, and aspire to, hopefully... As I get a little older, it's just the, um, the um, variety of his interest. Yeah. You know, that book covers photography, uh, philosophy, family memoir, uh, film, books, um, always slightly off the beaten track. Um, I think I was saying to Gemma earlier, Jeff and I are from similar backgrounds, working class backgrounds, both on these kind of scholarships to Oxford, in his case, Cambridge, my case. And it's my experience that people in that situation, they're usually so keen just to, um, uh, just to kind of break even with everybody else, right? So I, sp- I spent a lot of time reading the classics, trying to know what everybody else knew. And what I like about Jeff's writing is that he did do that, a lot of that, but he, he wasn't constrained by that thought that the first thing I have to do is read what everybody else has read. He yeah. was always willing to go here and there to strange places or strange corners. And... To me, that's a kind of 
a great responsibility of a critic that Jeff has a great working brain and then his idea is how many weird things can I put through it? Yeah. How, how many things can I process with this functioning instrument? And uh, that I, I, was one of the reasons I took the column because when I finished changing my mind, I thought, well, there's the record of, of my youth, you know, and, and it was a very... Uh, I don't know how to say it. It, it was a very, like... Uh, best student in class type of youth. You know, I was just trying to cover all the bases that I thought somebody should cover. It doesn't read that way, but... Well, that's sweet, but that, that's how it felt to me. And then you think, well, I, you know, I've read Middlemarch four times. I want to move on with my life <laughs> to, to, strange, to stranger waters. You know, after you've proved to yourself that you can, you can sit in, in class with other people and, and not be a fool, but you may waste a lot of time trying to... And, like everybody else. And he, I, I always feel that, I mean, Dyer is interesting because people think he's tricksy, but I don't think he's tricksy at all. I think he's extremely straightforward. He's Not, just weird. Yeah, he's, he's genuinely weird. I always say it to him when I see him, it's a, it's a fantastic undisguised weirdness. Um, and that's another thing I suppose I'm looking for in the books that are sent to Harper's is people who are able to write genuinely out of their own sensibility, not out of nostalgia, not trying to sound like somebody else, not uh, fearful. Uh, Some people who write uh, frankly, um, and Jeff's certainly one of those. So can I ask you then about Sharifa Rhodes-Pitts, because that's a book that you would think maybe... So Sharifa writes about Harlem in a book called Harlem is Nowhere, and um, that's the book that Zadie leads with in her column, at, her first column, and it's very much, you might think, infected by or with nostalgia, but in fact, you, you kind of disabuse us of that, or at least well, she engages with it as a, as a problem. Sharifa's book was actually a really uh, good lesson, because the first, I haven't written those kind of book reviews for a long time, and, and the first time I wrote it, Sharifa's sensibility and mine are quite opposite. She, I like things to be precise, I suppose, and she has a far more dreamy and, and loose way of writing. And my first response to it was a kind of annoyance. Um, and I, I wrote a review which was, I, it was pointed out to me um, by a friend, slightly contemptuous. And, I, and then uh, the same friend uh, said, you know what you're missing, you need to come to Harlem and see what she means. And we went on a walk um, on a Sunday to try and explained to me that this dreamy atmosphere she was trying to conjure up is something real. Mm. And I'd, my first reaction to it was, was actually, in fact, wrong. And after coming back, I read the book again, I st- went to review again and saw... It's, it's, again, that thing about respecting a, a gap between your own taste and somebody else's. Yeah. The, the, the demand of quality is always the same. You don't accept bad writing, because bad writing is bad writing wherever you find it. But sometimes there are gaps that are ec- extra-literary, Mm-hmm. Um, that you need to be uh, attentive to. And apart from anything else, I think, I mean, I'm keen to write about first-time uh, writers in the column because I was a first-time writer once. And, and there, maybe a, a, a writer-reviewer can have something, a little more sympathy or a little more understanding for how that first act works out. You know, it's a messy thing, writing a first novel. Mm-hmm. But what you're looking for is promise and interest and some integrity and I, it doesn't need to be perfect. Mm. Perfect books are, are rare and sometimes lethal to their authors, first novels anyway. And any, and any part of it that, that is young or, it, or it's even a sort of a line that you quote that might sound callow is actually just her figuring it out. Yes. And that, that was the thing about that book I came to really like, that you were seeing a figuring out process happening and uh, that was another moment of kind of keeping Wolf in my mind and uh, remembering that the kind of expressions of individual people who've had experiences different from your own, even if the cadence isn't quite as you might like it, is something of value. What did you think, did you feel, um, because in, in, when you talk about Sharifa, there's this whole question of authenticity and um, who does Harlem belong to, to whom does Harlem belong? And... I wondered, as an English person, black English person, how you felt about Harlem. Um, to me, it's a completely uh, uh, experience of otherness. I know black London, I know my family experience, but Harlem is completely itself. The book um, convinced me of that. And I mean, the, the strongest experience I had there is, I think, 
uh, matched by Sharifa's strong experience in there was going to the Schoenberg and seeing this extraordinary center of black culture, yeah. which um, I've never seen anything like it in England. Maybe there is something like that that exists. But to me, that was extraordinarily moving to meet the researchers and, and the librarians, the people who'd kept playbills, in one case of a young um, spoken word poet who died of AIDS in the early 90s. Very small louvre, but the librarian had gone into the man's house, rescued his papers from his grandmother who'd left them kind of wilting in an attic. Those kind of, that kind of dedication to literature, literature even of the most fleeting kind, mm. like there's a few videos, there's a few tapes, um, I thought that was extraordinary. Okay, now I have to read a tiny a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> About this exact library um, that Sharif had. The book is so, well, not centered around, but um, re- she relies on it in a really touching and wonderful and honest way. I haven't read the book, but I'm going on what Zadie says. It's the whole point of a book column. You don't need to read the books. I do it for you. Awesome. Um, this ob- well, so the author is, by her own account, afflicted by a single girl doing research fantasies, and the inclusion of that word single is strange, being so unnecessary. It suggests a narrator in pursuit of a love object. This object turns out not to be Harlem itself as much as the library within it, the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Harlem may be nowhere, but the Schomburg is definitely on the corner of 136th and Lenox. And within it, Rhodes Pitts pursues black Madonnas, Haiti, Liberia, black communism, the African nationalist pioneers, and much more besides. Upon finding the same individual mentioned in two entirely unrelated portions of her research, she reflects upon the classic researcher's dilemma. One book, quote, one book held the key to another, though it solved a riddle I had not been trying to answer and provided information I did not know how to use. What other mysteries might be unraveled the more often I came and the longer I stayed? Regularly, she emerges from this beachcombing to display a substantial hall. The beautiful pebbles need no polish to shine. Take James van der Zee, famous for his portraits of Harlem dandies, here rediscovered as a photographer of the bereaved and the deceased, in the same frame, a mourning couple formally posed with their dead child in their arms, or the impresario Raven Chanticleer, 1928 to 2002 is when he lived, inventor and a creator of the African-American Wax and History Museum, first statue himself, and son of, quote, a Haitian-born school principal and a Barbados-born concert pianist. At least it seemed that way until in death it was revealed, he was revealed to have invented his parentage too. Mother, sharecropper, father, sharecropper. And I have to stop you. I can't okay. read any more of my... Sorry. Hear any more of my... So, yeah. okay. Um, That's enough there. But, uh, yeah, no, the, the book is sensationally filled with little details like that, little details of Harlem lives. And what struck me about it is that it, if you've read, uh, like, A Room of One's Own, Wolf, it has that sense, and also uh, Jeff Dyer's book about D.H. Lawrence, yeah. of a book that in the attempt to write it kind of unravels, and the book ends up being a written account of writing the book. And I don't know if Sharifa meant it that way, but it, it reads that way. And I ended up finding that uh, a beautiful experience. But it's a classic example of, you know, you can choose to approach a, a book um, with an open mind. I, I approached it the first time with the closed one, and then you miss all kinds of um, uh, gems in it. Hmm. Beach combing. Exactly. All right, so now I have, I have a procedural question. Mm. When you, are, when you are reading books, like any book that you get sent from us or anyone else, how do you read it? Do you take notes in the margins? Do you put stickies in there? How do you read? Do you know what I found really liberating? When I was younger, I was completely tortured by the banality of things you write in the columns of books as you read them. <laughs> you know, you find in libraries someone's written metaphor or something. <laughs> and so it used to really... I'd agonize about what I was going to write in the corner of books in case anybody ever read them. And now I'm so freed. I just write metaphor or whatever it is. And, and those are like, uh, they become reminders for you. Anything too thorough, any kind of extensive note-taking destroys the process for me. It's the same with novels. You know, if I'm planning out something to the nth degree, the novel writing itself becomes useless and, and pointless. It needs to be a kind of pointerless thing in, in note form. And then, and then the thinking goes on on, on the page. Mm. And it's not... I, I used to think... I think all writers think they're unusual in this, but looking through 
archives recently in the New York Library and actually looking at Wolf's archives. She keeps on coming up tonight, I don't know why. But her um, plan for Mrs. Dalloway is like four points. It literally, and that might not surprise you having read Mrs. Dalloway, but um, it was incredibly delicate planning because the whole enjoyment is in the writing of the book. And to plan the thing out extensively, to me, feels uh, disastrous. I just don't have the energy to write the book if I know everything that's in it. And the articles are, are the same. I need to make the lightest of notes and then really um, get down to the work in the writing. But that procedure involves an enormous amount of, of despair because then after you've read four or five books, you don't seem to have any notes. The column is due on Tuesday. Um, but uh, my husband said, and I think it's probably true, that I obsessively recreate the atmosphere of college. And that was the atmosphere, you know. It's due on Tuesday. You've got no notes. Um, some, something of that anxiety uh, is necessary, I think, for Do me to get Do you think that I'm a done. good task, mistress? You're not bad. There's a certain... I was saying to Lauren Stein, I don't know if you hear the editor of the Paris Review, trying to get work out of writers, that there's a certain policy you have to pursue. It's quite delicate. Too many emails is a disaster. <laughs> like five or six Please. emails in a week and a half, the writer starts thinking of lies, <laughs> stuff about their grandmother. They broke it. I've done it many times. There's a certain critical mass. Then again, one email sent at the right time, which is gentle, not, doesn't push too hard, can be, can be correct. It's, it's an art, I think. <laughs> I've, I've done anthologies with writers and learnt to my cost just how. A certain amount of emails, and then you get an email back, my grandmother died, I'm moving to Missouri, <laughs> la, 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 la. Um, so you, it has to be just okay, I'm, gentle. I'm going to refine my... Yeah, I think I'm going to refine. You've been great so far. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, so can we ask you about the, no- the novel you're writing? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a very sh- short novel by necessity because that's, I think, what childbirth does to you. Your, your time is reduced. Um, but that's a good thing for me. And also, I mean, I was saying backstage to you that part of the process of being edited by, I have to say, American magazine editors and journal editors uh, has transformed the way I write, you know? I, I think, personally, um, I don't know if if uh, readers will feel that when they read the novel, but um, I don't completely believe in the American principle that the shorter the sentence is, the better. There's a kind of you know, <laughs> religion around that concept, which I find slightly tiring. But it's certainly true um, that reduction has helped me and control. And going over and over a piece, and particularly when I started with The New Yorker, having to cut things down, sometimes by 1,000, 2,000 words, is a real lesson, you know? And that's one thing um, I think in my English education uh, was brilliant at uh, showing you how to structure an essay because that's all they do all day long. But it wasn't very good about um, learning when to stop. I mean, I know if you've read my New York Review pieces, you probably think I still need to learn when to stop. But it could be a lot worse, you know. It could be several thousand uh, words longer. So just learning control and and editing even more severely... um, has helped, and also getting rid of that uh, principle of perfection. I don't, I, the two things have gone together for me. I guess knowing that the first draft is never perfect, that editing, even if you edit down to um, you know, a very tight thing, this, this perfect uh, novel you're dreaming of will be completely elusive. Now, I read so many, um, so many contemporary novels. It's easier when you're reading dead men to assume perfection. And also, you give them perfection in retrospect. There's a lot of contemporary novelists who will be given perfection long after they're dead. When they're living, you see all their failures, you see all their weaknesses. um, And that makes me feel better, I guess. Is that schadenfreude? I don't know. It's it's like the supportive failure of a creative commons. We all fail together, and that makes me feel better. Um, There's this uh, poem. I'm always giving my students, I'm going to try and remember it, but I'm going to fail. Uh, Do you know the novelist, Auden? um, Oh, God. The line in it, it's, uh, it begins something uh, encased, anyone who knows it, please shout out. Uh, encased in talent like a uniform, the rank of every poet is well known. Um, they can amaze us like a thunderstorm, or die so young, or live for years alone. Hmm. Uh, they rush forward like hussars. But he, meaning the novelist, must... must uh, Struggle out of his boyish gift. 
learn to be simple and awkward. Learn to be one whom no one thinks it's worth to turn. Yeah. And do you remember the second verse? Anyone helping me? Um, no, for, for to achieve the lightest thing... Hmm. <laughs> for to achieve the lightest thing, he needs... Uh, oh, sorry. I've lost it. I'm not the person to help you. I could not remember to be or not to be at one point. It's something like he must be... Uh, Sample with uh, stupid things like love, be amongst the just, just, the filthy, filthy, and in his own person, in his own, in his own weak person, dully suffer all the wrongs of man. It's really beautiful, the idea that the, no- the poet is always able to be this hero, this perfect um, symbol, but the novelist has to cultivate stupidity, simplicity, awkwardness, <laughs> to be something that sits, that talks about things which seem beneath contempt, like love. Such a tedious, lame subject, love. Another book about love. But that's what novelists are engaged in, the business of everyday life, of things that seem beneath contempt. And, and that kind of slowing down to appreciate the simple and the stupid, I think, can be very hard. And we talked a little bit about what I learned from teaching, what I found over and over, and I'm sure other writers have talked about the same thing that your most brilliant student, the one who writes the most fantastic critical essay, and you think, this person is a genius, and then you see their fiction, and uh, mm. it's, not, it's, it's a completely different thing. And it's not that the kid isn't brilliant. The kid is utterly brilliant. But is fiction, he just thinking too hard? No, fiction needs intellect. It certainly does, but it can't survive on intellect alone. It just can't. Mm. It requires all these other embarrassing things things that seem too banal to talk about, like empathy, like sympathy, like, a, like an appreciation of, of small details, of things that other people leap over because they're not even worth discussing. A novel brings them back and says, how about this, and how about this, and what about this? It's, oh, it's, much, so it's much slower. That is why I love Mrs. Bridge. Oh, I, oh, I think yes. that is my favorite book it's just for that reason. A slow attention, and that is really hard to... Because I think sometimes your most brilliant students, their feeling is, hey, I'm brilliant. What's the problem? I'm clearly a genius. And I want to say, you are, you are totally a genius. But genius is a thing that the novel can take only in very awkward forms. Like, there have been geniuses. that George Eliot is a genius. David Foster Wallace was a genius. But in both cases, making novels out of that genius was an enormous struggle. And, and for someone like David, a kind of also self-corrective process, realizing that genius alone was not going to swing this. But then I, I always feel like, particularly when I was younger, people who are very, very brilliant and who enter the novel and seem to have disgust for the form, <laughs> I always thought, well, you know, you don't have to write them. There are plenty of more intelligent uh, occupations that you can <laughs> indulge in. But the novelist has to be willing to look ridiculous. That's Auden's p- point, I think. Sorry, mm. so badly quoted by me. But just willing not to be the heroic poet. Poets do always get to be heroic. Oh. But novelists look fools most of the time, I'm afraid. It's part of the job. Am I allowed to quote one more thing? Sure. This is, well, it's this, it's this really brilliant essay at the beginning of Christina Stead's The Man Who Loved Children. Um, it's an essay by Randall Jarrell. And it's just exactly what you say. She's talking about, um, or Jarrell is talking about Stead's character, Sam, um, the banality of life and these small things. We can bear to read about Sam, a finally exasperating man, only because he is absolutely funny and absolutely true. He is so entirely real that it surprises the reader when an occasional speech of his, for instance, some of his brave new world talk about the future, is not convincing. Perhaps different parts of his speech have different proportions of imagination and fancy and memory. It doesn't seem that the same process, in Christina Stead, that is, has produced everything. And then there's this amazing thing that he points out, which I marked stupidly, like... Metaphor. Metaphor. Yeah. One morning, there are no bananas. Quote, Sam flushed with anger. Why aren't there any bananas? I don't ask for much. I work to make the home beautiful for one and all, and I don't even get bananas. Everyone knows I like bananas. If your mother won't get them, why don't some of you? Why doesn't anyone think of poor little dad? He continued, looking in a most pathetic way around the table at the abashed children. 
It isn't much. I give you kids a house and a wonderful playground of nature and fish and marlin and everything. And I can't even get a little banana. It's a, it's a very good example. One of the things about that kind of dialogue, it always strikes me with my students, is to write dialogue like that, you have to give up for a moment the idea that every line you write is about your own intelligence. You have to give up. You have to show people speaking, and they're not always going to speak like you. Yeah. And the novels that I really abhor is where every single line of dialogue is, is the novelist's voice, where not even the woman selling fruit on the corner is allowed to sound like a woman selling fruit on the corner. It's so desperate, that kind of picture of fiction, and so monomaniacal. So give, letting go and allowing people to be stupid, slow, this, that, or the other, um, is one of the things I like in it. But then that... The, the problem with that is maybe to suggest that all fiction should be of the Christina Stead school about families and in realistic um, places. It's, it's not that I mean. It's like, for instance, when you're studying philosophy, you learn very quickly that the central questions of philosophy are the ones that sophisticated people would find too dull to <laughs> ask, like, am I really alive? Or what is it to be good? Like, these are basic questions. But the sophisticated person thinks, well, who... Who asked that? What does it mean to be good? You know, just be kind to your family. Or well, how do you mean you're really alive? Kick that stone. You know, that's the simple, those are the supposedly simple answers to those questions. And novels aren't, don't do work as thoroughly as philosophy, but some of the same principle is there. I think so. That you have to slow down for the questions that seem almost not worth asking. But then there are people, like I just, there's a book I'm about to review uh, for Harper's called Suicide by a guy called Edouard Leve, a Frenchman, who extraordinarily wrote this book and then killed himself four days later. Uh, it's a novel, an astonishing novel, I think. Um, but one of his other novels, uh, someone was telling me yesterday, is designed like a, a newspaper. So he was able to rethink the novel, so each section is called Culture Obituaries. I love this idea. I haven't even read the book, and I'm so dying to read it. But someone is able to... That's a, the second way of the novel to rethink the novel itself. Mm. The most obvious answer to a novel is, what's a novel about? I don't know, some people, they're married, they fall in love. But other people are able to stop there and think, can the novel be something else? Can it be a different kind of form? Can it, can it be read in a different way? Well, that was what you said about Remainder, and I agree with you. Yeah, and I, I love books that are able to rethink this incredibly well-trod uh, form. To me, that's extraordinary. And people, again, when I was writing about brief interviews, struck me about that collection of short stories is every single story is an effort to reimagine what a short story should be. You might not find all of them successful. You might be repelled by some of them. But someone has sat down and written 20-odd short stories, each one of which tries to reimagine the form. And if you're sitting in a writing workshop, you understand how hard that is. Most people, the best we can do is just write a story which doesn't make us want to throw up. We're not out there to reinvent the entire form. But some writers are. And that when it comes along is, uh, you know, it's an incredible privilege and, and you're hoping always on the book pile that uh, you'll find one of those books. And that's, it's also generous and that's what you say about, about David Foster Wallace is that his gifts were generous. They were, but, but you also have to be ready for writers of, uh, as adventurous of David who aren't as generous, who are far more close and Leve is one of them. You know, you have to make a leap to him quite common with French writers, I might say. You have to make a leap to them. But that's not, uh, that doesn't discount them, you know? There's a, I don't know about in America, but an English instinct towards that kind of French fiction which kind of turns its head in disgust because we don't feel we should have to make leaps to novelists. They should come to us on their knees. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's a good education to, to learn that the novel doesn't have to always be agreeable. It doesn't have to come smiling at you saying, wouldn't you like to sit in a chair by the fire and listen to this story? <laughs> Some novels don't do that. <laughs> well, um, I know. Sorry, that, if I talked to you about questions. No, you haven't. But I, I know you didn't want me to, to bring this up about French people, French writers. But I am going to now. Now you brought it upon yourself. I brought it upon myself. Um, John Jeremiah Sullivan, who used to be an editor at Harper's and is a wonderful writer, he interviewed Guy Davenport, who used to write the new books column. And is a really, really phenomenal critic, um, phenomenal book reviewer. <laughs> um, so the question is, is, is it the application of the theory that you take issue with? And Guy Davenport replies, no, I think what upsets me is that I know good and well that these academics are sheep following the sheep in front of them. 
And I doubt if the people who throw around the names Bakhtin and Foucault have really read more than four or five pages of either or understand what's going on. The French adore ideas. They've been playing with them since Thomas Aquinas. They sit in their cafes, and the more outrageous, the more clever you can be, like Derrida or whoever else at the moment, the more you are loved. But they don't really take these things seriously. The young French student at the Sorbonne, excited by Lacan and Bakhtin and whatnot, his whole idea is to outdo these people, you know, in two or three years to publish his own book, explaining that everything we think is right side up is actually upside down. Americans don't possess this sense of play. I think that's sort of an interesting quote, given what you just said. Well, I, I but, or so. maybe it's wrong. No, I, I just I feel that each uh, literary culture has its own sins. You know, the American culture has perhaps sometimes a sin of, of macho-ness in, in novel writing, the idea of triumphing over the novel and banging it <laughs> into the ground till it's dead. Um, and the French have the... <laughs> I've just been reading a pile of French novels and contemporary ones, and quite often somewhere in the middle, a character will explain to you that life isn't like these novels where one thing happens to after another and everything makes sense. Um, and the French are very keen to continually remind you of the fact that life isn't like a realist novel. Some might say that in England we are also aware of this fact. It's not uh, complete. <laughs> we're not all deluded thinking we're living Austen novels. So each, uh, I just find that each culture has its own uh, bad habits. You know, and Maybe the contemporary French novel has the bad habit of assuming too much and having uh, too much contempt for the idea um, that the English tradition is somehow childlike or childish or doesn't understand that life is unorganized and confused and random. Mm. Uh, so there's that. But then again, um, at its great points, like reading um, Suicide, this absolute commitment to a single voice, to an existential experience that is uh, unflinching, that is unromantic, that is not shaped uh, in the way that perhaps in England we're more used to having our novels shaped, that is relentless, um, is fascinating to me. But the, that's the other thing that I don't... I hope I, people sh- shouldn't elevate one tradition over another. The principle is quality. Mm. Wherever you find good writing, that's good writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but f- for me, the challenge of the column is just to read what I wouldn't normally read. I have only one more question. Please. Yes. My question is, what, um, what critics do you admire? Um, is it, or is it, is that hard? No, I, I, there's a lot. I mean, Dyer, I really do admire a great deal. We talked about Berger before. before I, I really admire John Berger. Um, and lots of, you know, very... Hazlitt, I really admire. Um, he's extremely dead, but I, I do <laughs> admire him just for the variety and liveliness. Trilling, I also like. Um, and, you know, lots of contemporary uh, critics as well. But, you know, of course, now I... You know, that's I'm in the game, you know, so I, my books are, are criticized by critics that, you know, you really admire them until they destroy you. It's a bit depressing. Um, but uh, I do think it's actually kind of a, a lively time for criticism because it has to reestablish its, its purpose. And, and obviously on the internet there are a lot of people who, who feel the main point of commentary is to give that final thumbs up or thumbs down, whether it, it, it's a kind of immediate judgment. So it's Anyone can do that. So it's up to critics to show, or book reviewers to show, that part of the act is not just thumbs up, thumbs down. It's yeah. writing something which is beautiful and equal to the thing that's been put in front that of you. That is it. That is that's it. That's the whole purpose, that you should be ashamed to present in front of a book you admired something that's not worthy of it. The book itself is a challenge, and the commentary that you're trying to write towards it should be, it's not just a case of admiring the book, but wanting to be equal to it. And in that sense... The quote you read, I'm always a bit wary of a kind of easy contempt for what people consider secondary literature, people like Bakhtin or Derrida or Foucault, because those writers at their best are the equal of any fiction writer. The writing that they did at their best is beautiful. That makes a lot of sense. Roland Barthes was a beautiful writer, both in fiction and nonfiction. And to me, when I'm sitting down writing, there isn't a difference. You're trying to make the best sentence you can make. I'm trying to do that when I'm writing fiction. I'm trying to do that when I'm writing nonfiction. It's certainly easier when you're writing nonfiction, but the, the aim is the same. Mm-hmm. The attempt is the same. Oh. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> I think we're going to take questions. We have questions? Okay. 
says you do not have to get to the end. <laughs> okay. Um, I think you've called Tom McCarthy's first novel the future of fiction writing. Are there other books that you feel are trendsetters or turning the corner and showing a new way of writing novels? Um, I didn't call it the future. I called it a future. There is a key difference in that uh, sentence. This person did say, I think. Yeah, a, a future. Um, you know, I think the books that, that um, show you a new way to go are really rare. There's always a feeling when you're um, outside of any of these systems, I always felt it, that there must be an unbelievable amount of good books that people are refusing to publish or not publishing. And, and then I was a reader for a little while for a publisher before I was published myself, and it became very clear to me that that was not true. Um, so uh, that, and now that I'm a reviewer, you, you find it's, I think people mis- uh, underestimate how much people want to read good books. People who are in the book business would really love to read a good book, love to review a good book. Um, so whenever the pile comes in, I'm hoping that there's a masterpiece. Of course you're hoping for that, unless you're the most spiteful type of reviewer who <laughs> literally wants to keep the people down. You're dreaming that, uh, that a great book is going to come along, but it's, it's really rare because, I, I can't emphasize this enough, novels are really hard to write. Novels are really hard to write. I, I find a lot of great nonfiction, and already with the column I found myself writing about nonfiction because um, there you have an arena that you can really... Enough work, enough intellect, enough control will do the job, yeah. but it won't do the job in a novel. Yeah. So uh, uh, Tom's book just struck me because it's, again, the thing with Jeff, it, that a, a sound that's completely contemporary without, it seemed to me, a, a great deal of forcing or effort. It seemed to be a natural contemporary uh, voice. Um, and I'm sure there will be others. I mean, none, there were people, you know, 10 years ago when I first read George Saunders, I felt the same way. There are people who kind of uh, uh, knock you down. Um, but I think it's perfectly natural and normal for them to come around about once every 10 years. I think that's always been the way. And when people are talking about the death of a novel, their memories are short. Mm. Their memories are short. It, it, a, a decade doesn't produce that many great writers. It's just, it's not that common a thing. Yeah. That's a good answer. <laughs> I recently shared with my 10th grade English class your review of The Social Network, that appeared in the New York Review of Books. Unfortunately, the result is that I made you a lot of new technology defensive enemies. What do you see as the role of the reviewer in defending the act of reading in this time of shifting tendencies in, in, in the ingesting of information? Well, I think people should absolutely defend the technology. Like, my argument was not that the internet be bad. The point was that it, it could be better, <laughs> no? That's the whole... It's not the internet is going anywhere. I'm not gonna, you're not going to get rid of it with a review. Um, <laughs> it's just, uh, you, if you're going to spend that much time on it, you want it to be better and better. And there are clearly artists on the internet working, developing it, making it more and more interesting all the time. I was just interested in that one of the largest things that we spend a lot of time on isn't that interesting. That was my only uh, uh, thing about it. Um, oh, and well also, I think, in the defense, like it's again about not just admitting your own stupidity, which I was trying to do, but also admitting your own bad habits. I didn't go, I feel like now I didn't go far enough. I'm saying that (laughs) when I'm using the internet, I am addicted. (laughs) I am not able to concentrate on anything else. I'm not, this is not like a fancy argument. I'm trying to be honest. No, you use freedom, right? That's, that I use freedom, the program. I put my phone in another part of the house. It's pathetic, like a drug addict. (laughs) I put it in a cupboard so that I can write for five hours. So I was writing saying, that's me. Is it you too? Is it me alone? Am I, am I making this up? Does nobody feel this way? They're all not? just so addicted they can't even hear. They're they... walking down the street and they're thinking, have I got an email? Have I got an email? Have I got an email? <laughs> I had to get email taken off my phone. So I, that kind of experience, it, I was just trying to say, whenever you're writing, you're saying, I have this experience. Do you have this experience? Am I going crazy? Is it all of us? So that, that's all I was trying to say. But I think maybe when it comes to addictions, as we all know, when it's pointed out to you, that you have an addiction, it's really annoying. Someone <laughs> says, I drink too much, I'm like, get out of my face. And the internet is the same, same scenario. Nobody wants to be told they have an addictive personality, dif- addictive habit. But, but I like have a mass that habit. addiction. I have it very badly, and I, I have a feeling 
from the amount of times I've walked down the street and people walked into me with a phone, <laughs> that I'm not alone. I think you're alone. Okay, this is a good question. Do you have thoughts on Eminem the rapper? <laughs> is that my brother? Are you in the audience? Um, I, I interviewed him once, and then back then I had a lot of thoughts on him, but I, I think they may have faded with my age, not his. <laughs> um, the, the thing which struck me about him then, um, which uh, I, maybe it's a silly, it's again a very simple thought, but uh, when I met him, I felt that uh, he gave me a poster. It was a big poster with uh, uh, all the history of rap, and he was there, and he was one of, I guess, four white guys, him and the Beastie Boys. Um, so he was coming at that tradition from the outside, and I felt I was coming at my tradition from the outside, and it, and it struck me that if you are coming uh, inside out that way, that you have to work twice as hard. My mum always used to say to me, like I think a lot of black mothers perhaps say to their daughters, whatever you do, you've got to do it twice as well. She's always telling me this. And I was always struck with Eminem that um, technically, when he was a young rapper, he was doing it twice as well. You might not like the backing music, you might not like content of the songs, but in terms of the actual syntax, what he was doing in a line, he was doing it twice as well. He'd had to prove that he could do this thing because it was so easy to say, who the hell are you? You're just a white boy from Detroit, who cares? So he'd had to do 15 times the amount of work. Um, And that's what attracted him to me as a rapper because it seemed to me a real act of will on his part. He just decided he was going to be a great rapper, studied it, sat around with it, repeated lines over and over and over, completely obsessively. And finally achieved it. And I found that moving, I suppose. Hmm. <laughs> there you go. That's my thought in MM. Do you ever feel constrained by writing for an audience? Not so much, quote, the public or readers, but agents, editors, commercial interests compared to, say, Kafka, whose work made him miserable, but it was so much about the work for its own sake, he even wanted it burned. Um, th- there's lots of facts about Kafka there which aren't actually <laughs> accurate. He was obsessed with getting published, very, very jealous of his uh, peers, um, and did lots of public readings and all that kind of stuff. He wasn't, people have a strange idea about him in that context, but he was absolutely dedicated to his work, um, above all else, that's true. Um, I, I, again, I think people, maybe I'm in an unusual position, but my experience is the other way around. Uh, agents, editors, well, they, that doesn't bother me at all. They completely leave me alone to do my work. What bothers me is the first part of the question, having an audience. That does bother me. Mm. Um, and it's the... It is so much the public. It's the nature of the audience. So I, I remember when I was first in America, like going to see some of my peers read, and they read exclusively you know, to hipsters between 25 and 27. I was like, where are my hipsters? Like, my <laughs> audience was like, completely, it, it was like a Benetton advert and the age from like 15 to 104. <laughs> and uh, I found that, um, that a difficult responsibility. Like when I f- finished White Teeth and when I was back in Wilsdon after it was published, I, s- people would come up to me like an uh, old Jamaican woman on the street and say, when are you going to write another book about Jamaicans, or I have an old Irish lady, when are you going to write a book about the Irish? I'm like, it's the idea of having to, to please a lot of different people, but I used to find it very constraining, but now I actually think um, that there's something, my, for better or worse, my thing with writing is that it matters to me that it can be read by the people I came from. Yeah. I can't get rid of that idea. I can't ever really leave to write some novel that is um, so dense or so complex or so obscure that I can't have at least the hope that my family might read it or that I I have that in the back of my head. And uh, that might be a weakness, but sometimes I find it's like a weird class-based ULAPO constraint, which I kind of enjoy. Like I have to write a book that satisfies me, that I find intelligent and interesting, but that could also possibly be read by the people I came from. And that's like a weird exercise. And I wonder what I would do with complete freedom. Something awful, probably. So I, I, this I is, like the restraint. It's fate. As I see it. The next question is fate. How did you make the decision to rewrite Howard's End? Um, it was, <laughs> it was a, a retrospective decision because I, I woke up one morning. I'd been teaching Forster, but not that book, weirdly, but... Uh, in Boston, 
And I woke up and I told my husband, I've got this fantastic idea for a novel. I told him the whole idea. He said, I think you'll find that's how it's in. I was like, oh, <laughs> really? Um, so then I thought, well, <laughs> you could uh, give up that book or you could think of it as a, a funny idea. And in the end, I kind of loved making the connections and, um, and doing that thing. It ended up being uh, what I was talking about before, like this very traditional reading I'd, I had done to get, to get to the point I thought I needed to be at. Writing on beauty was felt to me like a thank you for that experience and also perhaps a goodbye as mm. well. Okay. After reading White Teeth and seeing the BBC adaptation for television, I was struck by how different these two are. As an author, how are you engaged in the adaptation process and how do you feel about it? Do you feel possessive about your stories and characters after you have written? No, not at all. There, there, as far as I'm aware, there isn't a line of dialogue in White Teeth in that TV show, not a single line. Um, and that's wise, because the dialogue in White Teeth is very... Uh, sounds nice when you're reading it. You try and say it out loud, it's absurd. It's not a naturalistic dialogue. Um, so they did, they did well to get rid of it. Um, but uh, I, I don't really have any feeling about those kind of things. It just seems completely separate from me. My only experience with White Teeth, the TV show I wrote about it, was that me and a load of school friends were in the party scene. Um, <laughs> interestingly, I found out years later that the crazy hippie dancing around pretending to shag my friend Sarah was <laughs> Russell Brand. I had no idea. Woo! Yeah, there you go. Um, so uh, we were in it uh, briefly, and I, it was just a strange like, kind of vision of like the opposite of what a novelist wants. Like the whole point of being a novelist is that you don't have to be responsible for anyone. You don't have a job. You don't have any real decisions to make. Your life is completely like a child's life, like a student life. And being on that set and seeing how this thing I'd written had occurred, made all these things happen, like people had to be fed. There was a truck. There were costumes. It made me feel like I was going to have some kind of seizure. So we, we stayed a few hours and then uh, we left. So I think I just... I can't deal with that large-scale involvement of lots of different people. Mm. Different, different things. Yeah. Zadie, do you complete your novels by writing when you feel like it? Or do you have a regular, everyday writing practice, and how has motherhood informed or impacted your writing? Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, I don't... I, I think my uh, schedule, such as it is, is very affected by mood sometimes it's a good day and but then sometimes it's a bad week or month or not too long ago you know years it wasn't it was really bad so I wasn't writing at all I just I find it how hard to write when I'm very sad I know there is a connection people think between depression and writing but in my opinion the two don't really go together mm. I need to be uh, writers need to be slightly melancholy but you know uh, anything Further than that does not help, in my opinion. Um, the th thing, I'm fascinated by the thing about motherhood and, and ch child, having children, I, I mean, sorry, motherhood and writing, and I wrote, I had to write a piece about it for International Women's Day, and so I was trying to find women, of, uh, writers who'd had children, and of course, the wonderful and terrible and extraordinary thing is, is that you have to wait until... Uh, it's nothing, 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 1954, nothing, nothing, oh, 60, and then suddenly this flood. Mm -hmm. So I feel like what's about to happen, all the young women writers I know, so many of them have children, and that is so new. Mm -hmm. It's such a new thing that's happening. So we're going to read books by people who've had children physically themselves. Yeah. That's a new concept in writing, and I'm so curious as to how it's going to affect uh, literature. There were so many extraordinary women writers of the 20th century for so many different reasons. Uh, didn't have children, um, and now it's beginning to happen. And I, I'm just excited. I mean, in my own experience, it makes you understand time in a way that you never understood it before. Yeah. An hour if, for me used to be, I think I'll go into the kitchen. Oh, an hour's gone by. And now uh, four hours <laughs> is all I have a day. And you learn that you can write a novel in that time if you absolutely do not go on the internet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so 
four hours a day is what I have, and, and I really use it now. I don't, I don't waste. I used to have days, weeks ahead of me, and I got nothing done, and now I always get something done in those four hours. This is the last question, and, well, it says, a question for Gemma. Why Zadie? And that is abundantly clear. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh,